Every six months, I visit an endocrinologist in Indianapolis who specializes in diabetic care. Every time I see him, he asks the same questions. He takes the same tests. We have the same conversations. Checks my blood pressure, pulse, A1C, that's the average blood sugar, 90 days. Checks thyroid, breathing, circulation, and then he starts in a litany of questions about my family, my work, the margin, sleep, exercise, diet, all of that. Every year, he orders the same battery of tests. He has a, a practice of when he comes in the room to ask, what do you think your A1C score is? Makes me guess. This is 90 days. This is the last 90 days. Average blood sugar. Generally, I guess 6.2, 6.4. Usually it's in that range. N not always, but usually. And then he very slowly slides a piece of paper across the table with the score on it. Even there, he's looking for something. Longer one has been a diabetic, the less aware they are of their blood sugar. They're not aware of the highs and the lows. So what he's measuring by making me guess is how self-aware I still am. If I say it's 6.2, but it's really 9.6, well then, I need help. What I'm saying is, he has in his mind a standard of health, and he has a dash, a set of dashboard indicators that he can ask quickly. And, if, and by finding those numbers, he has a pretty good summary of how well I'm taking care of my body. Have you ever wondered why this doesn't exist for the soul? That's at least as important. Yet when Christians talk about the state of their soul, they don't really know what to say. Well, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm enjoying the services. I'm having conversations with friends. I think, yeah, I think it's, I think it's pretty good. Yet, can you imagine saying to your doctor uh, what you say to your friends about your soul when he says? So what's your general health? And you go, yeah, I think I'm, yeah, I think I feel pretty good. I'm enjoying the meals and, and we have good conversations. And then he says, all right then, you seem to be in good shape. Pay the lady at the desk. I mean, <laughs> would you not think you needed another doctor or at least uh, would you not think that one needs a degree? Some formal way to talk about the condition of your health. But when we talk about our souls, we don't even have language for this. We don't have categories for this. Throughout the Bible, God promises to transform our entire lives. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. He says, I will renew your mind. He says, I will sanctify you and I will give you life more abundantly. 
Do you know how to measure that? Do you even know the categories? What is the blood pressure in the A1C of the spiritual life? Ten years ago, we started uh, looking for those answers. We found in the scripture a couple handfuls of themes that came up again and again And each one of these themes were mentioned in connection to the transformed life. They're not in just one part of the Bible. They're throughout the Bible, repeated. These themes we came to call soul shifts. I know it's a corny title, but we were trying to say something. We meant that when God is transforming our lives There are significant changes not only on the surface in observable behaviors that anyone can see, but those changes go all the way down into the depths of our souls. These are fundamental changes in the way we think about God, ourselves, and the world. And then on the surface, they have expressions. We actually act different and live different and everybody notices that. But long before that, something significant has happened. One of those changes is a a shift from sheep to shepherd. The idea behind it is this. Beyond every call to follow Jesus is a call to lead like Jesus. Beyond every call to Obey is a call to influence. It's a call to engage the world. In Mark chapter 3, when Jesus gathered his disciples for the very first time, it says he went up to a mountain and he called those that he wanted and they came to him that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach or proclaim and have authority to cast out demons. There are two instincts, two compulsions. They're like different calls. Both of them are in your soul this morning. Maybe you're not even aware of it. Maybe you have no language, but you think. One of those is a call to be with him. There is some instinct you already have to be with God. That's why you're in worship. That's what you're looking for. But there is an other commensurate instinct to be in the world. And that's why you go to work. That's why you go to college. You don't just want to get a job. You don't just want to get rich. Most of you, sorry, will not. But you want to get a degree that hopefully releases your potential so you can be part of healing the world. That instinct or compulsion that you have is a perfectly good and God-given instinct. And it's just as important as that instinct to be with him. 
So if you think of these two calls, these two compulsions that you have right now, one to be with him, another to be sent, you'll start to see how your whole life is structured. The desire to be with him leads you to worship. It leads you to time alone with God in the morning. It leads to Bible studies, accountability groups, spiritual formation, discipleship, spiritual direction, anything that helps you become a strong person on your interior life. But the call to be sent is a deep desire to find meaning and purpose in the things you do in the week. That is a call to take your work, your social platforms, your positions in the community, the influence that you have around others, and to connect that to that call to be with him. So that every time you're with him, you're thinking about being sent. How do I take what's happening in worship and channel that into my workplace? And then when you go to work or class, how do I take the stuff I'm learning right now and make that an act of worship? The problem is that the places where you will work don't always want that. Schools, hospitals, courtrooms, jails, markets, they're not all clamoring for a word from God. So you're, so you're sort of trying to figure out <clears throat> how do I translate this desire to be with him and to heal the world uh, in a place that really isn't hungry for that. And how do I get over these feelings of insignificance? Because I'm not sure I could lead anybody to do anything. So we start looking for a model <clears throat> that we think is simple enough and adaptable enough that you can use it in every discipline, and yet it's powerful enough and substantive enough to actually change the people around you. We came up with one. We call it a shepherd. And I hesitate to say it because when I was a kid, the only image I had of a shepherd uh, was uh, the poster in my Sunday school class of this bearded lady named Jesus. <laughs> With all of these effeminate qualities that we called holiness. <laughs> and he was holding this little lamb. Have you seen this poster? It, mm, it mars you for life. I, 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 I don't want that because it seems condescending to me. It, it seems like to, um, to be a shepherd is to wear a dress and hold little people. 
it's condescending. It, it's always reaching down to help somebody that's not quite where you're at. So you're taking them on. Here, here, I'm going to shepherd you. Oh, thank you. That's not likely to happen. So I was sort of chafing against that. Some of you have no religious connections at all. You didn't see that little poster, thank God. But you grew up in a, in a very secular environment. And so you've got images in your minds of strong leaders who kind of stand and point the way forward and they bring all of the people around them to a better place. But you wouldn't call that a shepherd. That seems kind of disconnected from anything significant. You say, well, I, yeah, I mean, I can say, hmm, I'm not sure that if I went to the Center for Leadership Calling, they would say, ah, yeah, you should be a shepherd. Oh, thank you. Man, I'm going to change the world. So I really struggled with the language until one day I was reading in Matthew chapter 9. I come to the end of this chapter, and it says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion. Literally, it means his heart, the interior, his stomach, his heart just begin to turn. You ever felt that? Mm. Because he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And I thought to myself, well, that's a, that's a funny thing to say at a time like this, because if you actually back up in the part of Matthew and you read what happened, it looks like this is one of the longest days of Jesus's life. We know this because there's a series of connections in the story that are like, then after that, or while he was still saying, and then he, these connectors seem to imply that starting at the end of chapter seven and going through at least chapter nine is a series of situations that he literally backs into. He comes off of preaching the Sermon on the Mount, which is the granddaddy of them all, and when he comes down the mountain and he wants to crash, there's a crowd and they need stuff. One of them is a leper and he just wants to be healed. So Jesus heals him. Somebody else notices and he works for the government and he goes, whoa, hey, I've got a servant and he's not even here. If you can do that for him, can you heal my servant? Jesus goes, go on home and your servant will be healed. And the moment he does this, the crowd notices and it gets larger. Jesus, wanting to get away, steps into a boat and goes across the sea. When he lands on the other side, there's another crowd. And there's two guys that are demon-possessed and they see him coming and they run toward him and they fall down in front of him and he casts the demons out of these guys and the people in the village are watching this and instead of being grateful, they're angry and they tell Jesus, get out of here, leave our city because the pigs, he cast the demons into the pigs. It seems like a better place for them if you ask me, but the pigs have all run into the sea and drowned and now the people are mad. So even when he's trying to do good, he gets criticized for it. 
So he goes to get back in the boat and leave again. And before he can, the guide's paralyzed. And they carry him to Jesus and they say, this guy can't walk, you need to heal him. So he heals the guy and while he's healing him, another person comes up and says, I've had this disease since I was young, you need to heal me. So he heals her and as he's healing her, another person comes up and says, I'm blind and I need you to heal me. (laughs) So he heals him, holy cow. This is all happening one thing after another. I mean, I suppose if you're an extrovert, you'd love this. But if you have, well, maybe. I mean, if you're an introvert, you're in a fetal position by the end of this day. And even if you're an extrovert, are you not thinking, I am done, man. Every person I need, see needs something from me. So the timing. That's when Jesus turns and sees the crowd. And what he says is, oh, these people are harassed and helpless. I'm thinking, oh, you're harassed and helpless. They're like sheep without a shepherd. No, they're wolves. No, they're not sheep. They get their mouths open the whole time. But he sees something I don't see. What does he know that I don't know? Because you don't just say that. So it turns out, I look into this phrase, sheep without a shepherd. What I discover is it's mentioned several times in the Old Testament. Matthew has lifted this phrase out of the Old Testament and dropped it right in the middle of this terribly, horrible, no good, very bad day. And he has said, here's the true condition of the people that he saw. They were not needy. They were not disruptive. They were not chaotic. And they were not evil people. They were like sheep without a shepherd. So I go back to the Old Testament and I say, what does it mean when when the Bible calls somebody sheep without a shepherd, and here's what I discover. From the beginning, Israel was called a sheep with no shepherd. As far back as the time when they were in the wilderness, they were like sheep without a shepherd. Moses is having a conversation with God. God says to Moses, I will lead these people in. You will not go. You will die. And in Numbers chapter 27, Moses then says to God, if I will not live, then appoint one person from this community who will lead these people in or out and bring these people in so they will not be like sheep without a shepherd. And I think to myself, ah, so sheep without a shepherd are people that are directionless. They're just moving from hit to hit, from one form of entertainment to another. They have no center, no direction in their lives. I keep reading. I come to a passage in Second Chronicles where King Ahab wants to go to war. 
but he wants to know his chances. He doesn't know if he's going to win. So he calls the prophet Micaiah into his chambers and he says to the prophet, I want to go to war. I need you to look into the future and tell me what you see. And the prophet looks into the future and this is what he says. I see all of Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And I hear Yahweh saying, these people have no leader. Send them to their homes in peace. Translated, you cannot go to war. These people are already defeated. They are demoralized. They have no fight left in them. They are tired. They are worn out. They cannot do battle anymore. They're exhausted. So I think to myself, wait a minute. When people have no shepherd, they're not only wandering around from one form of entertainment to another, they're tired, they're exhausted, they're demoralized, defeated. They have no fight left in them. I keep reading. I find out that on the eve of Israel's bondage in captivity, the exile, the prophets start telling Israel that the reason her nation is imploding is not because of the economy, it isn't because of the government, it isn't the evil that is in all of those other people, and it's not even our own immorality. The prophets say our problem is that we are like sheep without a shepherd. And what does that look like, I think? And Jeremiah says, when sheep have no shepherd, the sheep roam from mountain to hill, from hilltop to hilltop, and they forget their own resting place. And I think to myself, oh, I remember that in the ancient days, the hilltops were where they put shrines and religious buildings. So what the prophet is really saying is when people have no shepherd, they're incurably religious. And so they bounce from one form of religion, from one sage or prophet to another, looking for someone who can say something that makes sense spiritually. And they have forgot their own religion. They have forgot the place that gives them peace. I turn to Ezekiel, and it says, when sheep have no shepherd, they trample the grass, they overconsume, they eat it all themselves, and then they trample the rest so that the weak sheep can't get it. They drink the clean water, he says, and they muddy the water for the weaker sheep. When sheep have no shepherd, Ezekiel says, the strong sheep use their positions and their stature to shove and push the lame sheep so they cannot eat. And I think to myself, so when sheep have no shepherd, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. The people that have privilege oppress people and the other people live oppressed. I turn to Isaiah chapter 13 and he says, 
When sheep have no shepherd, they run like a gazelle when it's being hunted. They fly in all directions. And I think to myself, they're afraid of terrorism. They're afraid of threat. The big thing that's going to come. Well, you can see where this is going, can't you? First, they're directionless. They don't have a purpose. And then they're exhausted. They're defeated and demoralized. And then they're oppressive. They hoard things. They keep them to themselves. And they don't let other people, the weak and the lame, have access to anything. And they run at the sound of threat. And suddenly, this image of a shepherd isn't so corny anymore. I start thinking to myself, maybe all the time we've needed a shepherd, but we didn't have language for it. And so we just kept electing, hiring one leader after another. Maybe this is why our leaders disappoint us. Maybe this is why we disappoint other people. It's because all the while we're hiring and electing a leader, what we want and cannot find language for is a shepherd. Well, about this time, he has me. <laughs> I'm thinking, if I want to fulfill that other calling, if I want to heal the world, I got to figure out what it means to shepherd. So I start studying in the Old Testament to find models. I find two. One is of Moses, the other's of David. Both of them were with sheep, literally, when God found them. But Moses is a reluctant leader. He don't want to go. And David is an assertive leader. He can't wait to go. <laughs> Moses is, here am I, send him. <laughs> And David is, bring the Philistine on. And I'm thinking, I feel more like Moses. And I'm betting you do too. At least when it comes to this. So I start reading Exodus. And what I discover is God's way of healing the world is to find a person already embedded in the very people he wants to lead out. They're already there. He don't have to find them. They're there around him every day. And then God calls this person to shepherd them. So shepherding isn't so much about condescending, looking down to help somebody less than us, 
Shepherding is about looking around at the people already around us. And by looking at them, discerning things in their lives that are in need of direction. Shepherding is not about evangelizing people. It's about taking care of people because people need to be cared for. 80% of the people in their jobs in America today, 80% say there is nobody in my job who is looking out for my best interest. Now think about that. Every day you go to work and there is nobody in your office whose chief concern is your career. Baby, that's your concern. And their concern is their own career. And you have just now described four out of five working environments. Can you imagine how transforming it would be if there were a few people who went into the same office and their first concern was the well-being of other people? Why? That could change everything. I start reading this story of Moses and it sounded like mine. Maybe it's yours. He's on the backside of the mountain one day in the middle of his job. Tending sheep was his job. Backside of the mountain, all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord shows up. Bush catches on fire. He sees it and he goes over to look at it. And it was only when he went over that he heard a voice. And it said, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. And I make a note to myself. My job in the middle of the day is holy ground. I never knew that. I thought I had a secular job, you say. I thought it was an office. I thought I was a teacher. I thought I was a physician's assistant. No, that's holy ground. That desk, that chair, that lobby is holy ground. And then God starts telling Moses what he's going to do. He says, I have seen these people that are around you. And I remembered the promises I made. I've heard their cries. All those complaints that make you sick, I've heard them too. And I've come down and I'm going to lead these people out. I need you to go. <laughs> I'll do it, but you must go. And you protest. You say, <laughs> oh, jeez. Who am I? And he says, who are you? Who am I? I am the God of your fathers. I've been at this now 
for thousands of years. And my name, well, you can't say it. It's four consonants. There's no vowels. It's unutterable. But it means I am that I am. Brevard Child says a better translation is wherever I am, there I really am. Wherever I am, in the office, in the class, on the shop, in the locker room, wherever I am, there I really am. You say, I'm not a leader. These people don't want lead. I have a defect from the past. I, I, can't, I can't get over it. Somebody else is a better leader, send them. And God says, yes, everything you said about you is right. And you're only getting started. Your inadequacies are endless. But those are not things that disqualify you. Those are the reasons I called you. Your calling is not rooted in your strength. It is rooted in your weakness. Your calling does not rise from the things you think you can do. It rises from things you must do and cannot do without God. And that's when you start to get it, I may be bad at this and I may fail, but I have to take responsibility for the lives of a few people around me. That's the little secret in the Christian life. There comes a time when you can't go any further spiritually unless you bring somebody with you. Just as the call to be with him is a call to take responsibility for your spiritual life, the call to be sent is the call to take responsibility for somebody else's spiritual life. No matter your discipline, no matter where you work or the degree that you're studying for, can you imagine the potential if you really leaned into that? Your calling always involves people. It, it's not just being a better worker mastering your craft. No, no, it always involves the people around you, always. And it always is part of an exodus. There are people who live with you and work with you who are in bondage. 
and they need let out and they need brought in. However tired and inadequate you feel, God may be calling you to join him.